Some of you know we just wrapped up a series on the minor prophets. We called it the major lessons from the minor prophets. We took a look at those 12 different books that are sort of found at the end of the Old Testament. And then today we're actually beginning a new series. And this new series we're going to be looking at over the next month, we're calling it The Power of Weakness. The Power of Weakness. The sermon today is intended to serve really as a brief introduction to the topic. It's kind of intended just to sort of make you think a little bit. It's intended to make you think a little bit. It's not, not really a deep dive into uh, the power of weakness, but rather it's an introduction. I want you to be thinking about this concept of strength that's found in weakness in God's economy. And because it's so counterintuitive, I just, I just want you to begin processing that idea today. We'll cover it more over the next uh, three weeks. Now, today I'm also going to touch on the topic of forgiveness in the sermon. And so before we begin, I want to acknowledge that some of you have been wounded far more than most of us can imagine, more than we can fathom. And so, so for some of you, forgiveness is going to require that somebody come alongside of you as a, as a guide, maybe a helper. And so if that's the case with you, then I would encourage you to maybe come talk to me afterwards. Maybe you can talk to someone that you, you know. And if you talk to me, I'd be honored to help you find someone to serve in that capacity as a guide to help you work through forgiveness. Before we begin, however, let me take just a moment and let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. Father, your word is by definition uh, an attempt. It's the goal, Father, to to help us walk through life, to flourish, to live. Father, it's it's an opportunity for us to fully become the people that you created us to be, Father. And, and obviously, Father, it's not just uh, that the Word or Your Word is a, is a pathway for us to learn how to walk through, Father, but it shines a light on who You are, our good Father, and on Your Son, Jesus, our Savior. And so, Father, I pray today um, that we would allow this, Your Word, to sink down through our heads all the way into our hearts, and that we might leave this place today changed. We pray all these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So over the last 20 years, the film industry has been dominated by movies about superheroes. You can just sort of, you know, think for a second in your brain, probably all sorts of things pop up in your head. The advent of CGI has made it possible to watch superhero movies without having to suspend your rational mind quite as much as I did when I was growing up in the 80s and special effects were still in their infancy. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. There's a great special effects picture of Batman and Robin there. We got another one of Superman here. Superman right there. You can, you can go find these things where, like, it, as they were filming it, he's just laying on a table, and then they put this thing in the background. Anyway, and so back then, you sort of had to, you had to work along with the very remedial uh, sort of special effects, and you had to really use your imagination a lot, but it was worth it. At the beginning of the 2000s, Pixar introduced us to The Incredibles. Maybe you remember The Incredibles. They're this family that all had superpowers, Mr. Incredible was super strong. Elastigirl, who was married to Mr. Incredible, was super stretchy. Somehow that totally works for her in the movie. Vi, their oldest daughter, had the power of invisibility, and she could also create force fields. And so immediately some of you introverts are thinking, wait a minute, I could be invisible and keep people away from me? Yes, please, I'll take that. Of course, their son Dash was super fast. And then finally, the little guy down there in the bottom, Jack-Jack, could spontaneously burst into flame, shoot lasers out of his eyes, and travel through dimensions, among other things. The year after The Incredibles was released, Christopher Nolan and Christian Bale's Batman Begins came out. 
Baal's superpower was essentially an unwavering idealism coupled with an iron will and backed by billions of dollars worth of cool tech gadgetry. Three years later, we were introduced to Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man. You guys are familiar with that? And then not long after that, we were introduced to the Avengers and then to Wonder Woman and finally to the Black Panther. The list goes on and on and on. The question is, what do each of these characters have in common? And maybe more importantly, why do they resonate with us? Well, for one thing, each of those characters has power, specifically superpower. But why do these movies and why do these characters actually resonate with so many people at one level or another? And I think the answer is because we long to be powerful. What man among us wouldn't want to have Hulk-like strength? I remember in the early 1980s, watching the TV series The Hulk, starring Lou Ferrigno, where his, the special effects on The Hulk was they spray-painted him green and put a wig on him. That was about it. But I remember at the beginning, there's a scene where he lifted a, a car off of someone that he loved, and I remember wondering if that ever happened, would I be able to lift the car off of my loved ones if I had to? What woman wouldn't want to utilize Wonder Woman's lasso of truth and then ask the question, are you done with your homework? And did you hit your sister? Those would come in handy. In all seriousness, those characters and movies resonate deeply with us because we, whether we're a man or a woman, we long to be powerful. We long to have impact upon the lives of those that we love. We long to have the power to do good, to fight evil, and to implement justice in the world. That's that's why we go to the gym. It's why we work out and lift weights. It's why we go to college. It's why people go off to get counseling degrees and get medical degrees. The desire to be powerful isn't actually the sign of something wrong with us. Rather, our longing to be powerful is a reminder to us of the one in whose image we have been made, right? That longing to be powerful is in us because we're created in the image of God. But as many of you are fully aware, there's a problem with power. In fact, technically, that's incorrect. There are many problems with power. First of all, the image of God in us has been corrupted or polluted by sin, and because of that, we're just as likely to use our power for evil as we are to use it for good. In fact, we may be more likely to use our power to benefit ourselves at the expense of people who are less powerful than we are. You're probably familiar with the axiom, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's an axiom because it's truish. A second problem with power is that though we do play a vital role in bringing goodness and justice to the world, ultimately the final outcome of goodness and justice, what the Bible would call shalom, ultimately that belongs to God, and we should be glad that it does because we're not very good at playing God. Bruce Almighty has taught us that lesson well. Finally, and this is really the theme of this particular sermon series, God has ordered His world, this now fallen world, to operate in a way that is counterintuitive. God's economy is inside out. It's upside down. It's bottom up. We see that backwards economy early on in God's story when God ordains that the future Savior would come through the line of an unloved wife named Leah. God then chooses a murderer with a speech impediment to lead His people out of slavery in Egypt. That theme of using those who are weak continues as God ordains women to rescue His people time 
and time again in a culture where women didn't have much power, a judge named Deborah, a princess named Esther, and even a prostitute named Rahab are key figures in God's plan of redemption. The New Testament is no different. God continues to use the weak and the powerless there as well. A young teenage girl, blue-collar shepherds, a group of Persian astrologists from Iran, they're all key figures in the story of the Savior. And then Jesus remarkably goes about building his messianic team, not with intellectual, economic, or political power players, but instead with some fishermen, with a rebel, a skeptic, and even a traitor to his own people. After Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, God shockingly chooses a violent right-wing political activist to become the key figure in bringing the message of Jesus to the entire non-Jewish world. In a great twist of fate, God doesn't avoid weak people, but rather He invites them into His larger story of redemption. Listen to what that last man, who we know as the Apostle Paul, has to tell us about God's paradigm, and specifically what he has to tell us about the power of weakness. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, beginning in verse 30. Paul writes this, "'If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness.'" The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is to be praised forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. Now, if you remember, Paul's conversion was on the Damascus Road. We read about that in Acts chapter 9. He rode into the city of Damascus, a man of power a man of honor, a man of dignity. He was anointed by the religious and the political elite to arrest and persecute Christians, but here we see that he left Damascus not in power or in honor, having accomplished his great mission, but rather he leaves in weakness and he leaves in shame. The persecutor had become the persecuted. He escaped the city by being lowered from the city wall in a basket in weakness. Paul goes on to write in chapter 12, verse 5, I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. We'll get to that in a later sermon. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, take this suffering away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The power of weakness. As I mentioned earlier, over the next month, we're going to be in this sermon series entitled The Power of Weakness. We're going to be exploring specifically the, the themes of the weakness of meekness, of suffering, of humility, and today we're going to touch for just a moment on the idea of forgiveness. Each of those involve laying aside our power. Each of those involve laying aside our rights. Each of those involve laying aside our control in order to trust in God, our Heavenly Father. 
And in a great twist, we'll see that as we embrace our weakness, we actually become strong, says Paul. That's precisely what he says here in verse 10 of chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read it again. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I would be lying if this didn't sound counterintuitive to me. My guess is that it sounds counterintuitive to most of you as well. It's definitely counterintuitive to the broader world around us. If you just go to YouTube and type in the word weakness, you'll see what pops up. There's a Joe Rogan clip entitled Eradicate Weakness. In the clip, he talks about how whenever he spots weakness in himself, he seeks to remove it at all costs. Former Marine David Goggins pops up as well with a similar loathing of frailty. Jocko Willink, Jordan Peterson, the list of anti-weakness evangelists goes on and on and on. And now we know in one sense that weakness isn't a virtue, it's just weakness. It's not good to be ethically weak. That would inevitably lead to a lack of integrity. It's not good to be physically weak. If I want to be able to play with my grandchildren one day and not be too much of a burden on my family as I age, then I should probably try to stay fit. Maintaining strength as long as possible is actually loving to my family So what does Paul mean when he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong? Well, at the very beginning of the letter to the Corinthians, Paul gives us at least one example, and of course, over the next month, we're going to look at the others. But he tells the Corinthian church to forgive those within the church who have, as the ESV translates it, caused pain, to forgive those who have caused pain. Now, we we don't know exactly what that pain was, but what we do know is that in some way, some damage was done that caused hurt. And then Paul uses the financial term forgive, that's actually an accounting term, to describe how we as believers should respond when brothers or sisters cause us pain. Technically, forgiveness, again, is this mathematic term, it's an accounting term that means to erase or to remove a debt that someone owes you. Forgiveness means that when it's in your power to make someone pay you, instead you give up your rights and you cancel their debt to you. This is counterintuitive. It's inside out. It's upside down. It's bottom up. Remarkably, Paul, however, goes even further, as if that wasn't hard enough. He not only tells the Corinthian believers to forgive, he tells them to comfort, and he tells them to reaffirm your love for the offender. It's one thing to forgive someone and walk away to kind of wash your hands and be done with them. That maybe would be something that would be some relief to us, but it's something totally different to then move towards a person who has hurt you, especially offering them comfort and offering them love. Just let that sink in for a moment. That's counterintuitive. That is not the way of the world. Perhaps what is most interesting is the word that Paul uses for comfort in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians is actually parakaleo, parakaleo. That word is probably familiar to several or many of you in this room. Some of you will know that one of the names that Jesus gave to the Holy Spirit was the paraclete or the comforter. And let's look at what Jesus said to his disciples in that passage where he called the Holy Spirit the paraclete. In verses 16 and 17 of John chapter 14, Jesus says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, parakletos, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. In other words, Jesus told the disciples that their heavenly Father would send someone to sit with them 
and to comfort them and to remind them of what was true about who He was and about what Jesus came to do and who they were. And whether we know it or not, we often need to be reminded of the truth as well. Recently, I met with someone at Seven Hills, and they asked me if I had any advice on how to combat anxiety. And have experience, having experienced my fair share of counseling and, and the study of cognitive behavioral therapy over the years, I was able to answer relatively quickly. One of the primary ways to combat anxiety is to actually remind yourself of what is true. Some people call it self-talk, but it's telling yourself what's true. For example, I'm going to give you guys a little example here. You can tell yourself that the chances of dying in a plane crash are 1 in 11 million. Okay, so 1 in 11 million. Just think about that for a second. And to put that data into perspective, what that means is you'd have to fly every single day, 365 days a year for 400 years before you were involved in a plane crash. All day, every day, 365 days a year for 400 years before you were involved in a plane crash. In other words, the chances of you getting in a plane crash are minuscule. And on top of that, I read a little article and saw a graph. The odds of actually dying jump from about 1 in in 16 million if you sit in the cheap seats in the back of the airplane. I bet you didn't know that. For some reason, the seats in the back of the airplane are safer. Who knew? Got to tell yourself these things sometimes. Of course, sometimes in the midst of anxiety, we don't trust ourselves. And so what we need when we don't trust ourselves, when we don't believe ourselves, is we might need someone to come alongside of us and to be the one who reminds us of what is true. That person could just be a friend, just a loving, caring, present friend. It might be a a professional counselor. It could be a teacher. Jesus' point, however, is that for the Christian, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does. He comes alongside of us. He reminds us that we are forgiven. He reminds us that we are loved. The Holy Spirit reminds us that we are adopted. The Holy Spirit silences not only our own voices of doubt and anxiety, but He silences the voice of the evil one as well. Now, it's interesting, in that verse I just read, or the two verses from John 14, there was, there was a key word that could have slipped past you, and Jesus says this. He says that God will send another comforter. He says there's, there's another comforter. There's an assumption that one comforter had already come to the disciples. In 1 John 2, verse 1, the apostle John identifies who that comforter was. He writes this, My little children, I am writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a parakletos, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Right? So Jesus was that first comforter. He continues to be our comforter. And so when we come alongside someone and forgive them, offering comfort, offering them love, someone who has wounded us, when we come alongside of them and reaffirm our love for them, we are following in the footsteps of Jesus. We are living out the image of God in us, even as the Holy Spirit. But we're, again, we're we're basically being Jesus to those people who we enter into a relationship with, the very same Jesus who proclaimed, Father, forgive them, that is, the people that crucified Him on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are.